Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory. And we're on the banks of the Kasiskisa Wanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is independent journalist and host of the Is This For Real podcast, Omar Salafu. Omar, welcome. Welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me, Duncan. So, uh, the reason you're on, Omar, is in the the final week leading up to the kind of province-wide municipal elections here in Edmonton, uh, Janice Johnson with CBC released a series of explosive, explosive, explosive and, and absolutely must read stories. They kind of got lost in the mix with, uh, with the, with just the municipal election going on and, and really no comment from anyone at the, at the Edmonton police service. But they were all these stories were based on the leaked investigative files of Detective Dan Beheels. Uh, this is a detective that led an investigation into uh, the person many people know as Abdullah Shah, but is also known as Karma Pervez. And this investigation lasted two, three years, ultimately led to uh, no charges. <laughs> and uh, investigation, uh, Beheels investigation didn't just stop with Shaw. He started investigating members of the EPS as well and making very serious uh, allegations. Here's just like a tiny little quote from the first story. Uh, quote, in his January 2021 report to Chief McPhee, B. Hills wrote, I believe that members of the Edmonton Police Service have engaged in corrupt acts that have effectively insulated this criminal organization from investigation and prosecution. Now, Omar, that's a pretty heavy accusation to make. Yeah, I think it's a very it's a very confusing and and very heavy situation that's being, you know, followed in this in in this feature or I guess uh, you know, set of articles by CBC Edmonton and Janice Johnson. And I feel like um I I I my the biggest question that comes to my mind is why? Why why would the police um I guess if you believe this accusation um insulate Carmen Perez um, or Abdullah Shah from prosecution or from facing any of these accusations in this investigation or from furthering an investigation that could have led to charges. Um, so, yeah, again, insulating him. I'm not sure. This story is kind of weird. Yeah. So ultimately, this investigation goes nowhere. Hardly any charges are laid and none that directly result from Hill's work. Uh, but but Hill's is kind of um, shook by this whole situation, by the fact that nothing happened. And it's not every day that like a longtime cop decides to light his career on fire, but that's what he did. He, he took his investigative files and he essentially handed them over to Janice Johnson, 64 gigabytes years worth of investigation into Shaw. And, and then he turned around and he told his boss, by the way, Hey, I leaked all these files <laughs> to the CBC <laughs> and, yeah. and, uh, and, you know, now B. Heels is on paid leave and he is awaiting discipline for leaking these files to the CBC. He's, he's been uh, no charges under the police act have yet been laid against him, but he's been uh, informed that he is under investigation. And, um, you know, I kept reading these pieces and I kept yelling at Omar. I was like, Omar, you have to read these pieces. They're absolutely wild. Mm -hmm. And and so today, I think because Shaw is such a kind of pervasive figure and because he is extremely litigious i think this is mostly just going to be like a reading series where we kind of pull out some of the more extraordinary pieces uh and paragraphs from janice johnson's reporting 
but uh but before we get going like you know is, is there any more context that i think needs needs to be said before we get into this reading series well i guess um maybe we can talk a little bit about Slumtown and <laughs> okay. kind of All right. i guess the precursor to this story because Carmen Perez or Abdullah Shah was a big part of CBC Edmonton's first or I guess one of their, you know, highly, you know, one of their first highly produced podcast series in summer of 2019 that came out called Slumtown that kind of chronicled these uh, buildings that are owned by Carmen Perez and his tenant company or sorry, I guess landlord company or whatever you would want to call that. And um uh, Duncan, maybe you can maybe describe what the podcast was like because I don't think either of us has listened to it, so I don't think we're I, I did listen to it. it. Oh, I did okay, listen to okay. it when it came out, and I was very okay. mad at it because it was this five part you know piece, like very this American life, very this very Gimlet Media style, like highly produced take on you know essentially uh, problem properties. And then when they when they dug into this problem of problem properties, uh, they ran into um, you know Abdullah Shah owned a lot of them. And, but that piece of content, I mean, yeah, you bring it up because it's kind of advertised alongside these Janice Johnston articles, but I don't think they're very, they're similar in any way. Like, like, you know, she tried to get this, to do this very gritty, very realistic kind of portrayal of how, what it was like to live in, you know, or deal with these properties, essentially from the perspective of a, of a homeowner, which like she was like a homeowner who lived nearby these properties, though she never really kind of disclosed that. But uh, the, the, the journalist who produced it, but then that Slumtown podcast never once actually like had a voice of like an unhoused person or a person who used drugs. And so I, I uh, listened to it. I mean, a lot of people listened to it. It was not great. I was not a fan. I had my criticisms of it. But it is very sunny, funny to see it kind of advertised alongside this deep dive by Janice Johnson into Abdullah Shah. One thing that uh, I think is important to point out as well is I think when that podcast was produced, Edmonton police didn't provide almost any comment. Mm -hmm. And I think that they almost, you know, left the journalists in the dark. And then so now you have a situation where I guess, yeah, we have a cop who's kind of coming out and putting his own career on the line in order to seemingly, I guess, give the public this information. But then again, yeah, we're going to go into the information and see how it's being shaped and, you know, all these different things. And I think it's also worth pointing out as well that um, Abdullah Shah's lawyer in the article that we're about to read says that um, Project Fisk was a witch hunt driven by tunnel vision, quote. And he didn't agree to be interviewed by CBC, but that is his, st- his uh, statement for his clients. So I don't know what that means. You can make of that of what you will. Exactly. Yes. And we are going to be uh, careful with our language, uh, you know, Shaw and his friends and allies are litigious. There are currently four uh, defamation lawsuits that have been levied against the Edmonton Police Service. Uh, nothing against um, Janice Johnson so far. Uh, and this reporting all seems rock solid. So again, this is again like an extended reading series uh, of this these extraordinary reporting by Janice Johnson on uh, on the EPS. I mean, I think the more important than the stuff than the look into EP into Shaw is is is. Ex- what's going on at EPS, what's going on at the Canadian Revenue Agency. Like, it's absolutely wild. And, uh, and let's, uh, let's get into it. So uh, part one, the first story is called Behind the Blue Line, Investigating Abdullah Shah. And again, I'm just going to be quoting directly from Janice Johnson's reporting here. For more than three years, Beheels investigated notorious convicted criminal Abdullah Shah, also known as Carmen Pervez, 
and his alleged fraudulent dealings conducted through his company, Home Placement Systems, or HPS. The investigation, known as Project Fisk, which, uh, just as an aside, uh, in a recent Reddit Ask Me Anything that Detective Beals did, <laughs> this Project Fisk is actually named for Wilson Fisk, uh, the Kingpin's actual name in the Marvel comic books. Anyways, the investigation, known as Project Fisk, looked to dismantle an alleged criminal organization, Shaw, who has a lengthy police history, including drug trafficking and a $30 million mortgage fraud, was suspected of running. Launched in 2019, Project Fisk was to investigate alleged money laundering, tax evasion, organized crime, drug trafficking, human trafficking, violent assaults, and fraud linked to HPS. Yeah, again, still wild to me that... that Fisk is named after Kingpin. The The earlier like intelligence gathering operation was also called Flatermouse, which seems to has no bearing on Fisk. Yeah, it, it, I, I feel like this is a situation where they might be better off just like using a random name generator or like maybe doing a thing where like, you know, like horses have all these weird random names. Just name every investigation after like, yeah, it's some like horse or something. Yeah, go use the hurricane naming convention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, quote, but when the Crown decided in January of this year to not lay criminal charges and police drop the investigation, Beheels, 39, grew increasingly concerned that justice in his eyes would not be served. Through 2016 to 2018, approximately 10% of Edmonton's homicides occurred in a property owned or controlled by Shaw, and his influence over the street-level gang activities in the red alert of the Red Alert were expanding. This is a direct quote from a letter that Detective Beehills wrote to Police uh, Chief Dale McPhee in January of 2021. Uh, continuing uh, quoting from that letter from Beehills to McPhee, increasingly violent offenses were found to occur at an inordinate frequency at these properties due to Shaw housing and supplying drugs to the to the street level gangs. Uh, end end quote. Feeling as if he had exhausted every option, Beehills turned whistleblower. He handed over a thumb drive to CBC Edmonton. This is the thing that contains 64 gigabytes worth of documents, which is uh, an absolutely titanic amount uh, of information and years of police work, thousands of hours. Um, but right after he did that, he confessed his actions uh, in an emailed report to the police chief. He didn't want to be uh, apparently this guy's a Boy Scout. He's like, look, I, I leaked it. I shouldn't have leaked it, but I'm but I leaked it. Yeah, I guess. um a few questions come into mind and I guess I have more questions than answers or anything else at this point, but, um, you know, 10% of murders, um, in Edmonton, I don't have the murder statistics in front of me right now, the violent crime statistics, but, um, okay. One out of 10 murders in the city happens in one of Abdullah Shah's, you know, houses, or at least one of the biz- one of the houses that are owned by his business. Um, and, he was increasingly concerned that justice in his eyes would not be served. So it was worth, you know, sacrificing his entire career on, you know, one out of 10, these city's murders. Um, this also leads me to ask and question out of, you know, the decade that um, B Hills has been, you know, serving if anything else in the realm of injustice ever concerned him increasingly to the point where he would willing, he was willing to, you know, make any kind of sacrifice. This is also the province, you know, where carding was, you know, pretty commonplace for years. A lot of other things I think were pretty unjust. Obviously, you know, maybe not on the same level that we're dealing with here. Like I said, one in 10 murders. But I feel like these are questions that should be asked here. You know, the timing of this decision, how it's also, you know, in the same context as 
a lot of other things that are happening in this city. And yeah, like I said, one out of 10, still pretty terrible. But um, yeah, where can we also lay the blame on these things? Can we lay the blame nice and neatly on one individual who also owns a company, who also like probably has a lot of associates, who, like they mentioned, is involved with potentially, you know, gangs? So yeah, I don't know. A lot of questions. The one out of 10 number really jumped out at me. And it also was like one of the only things that really kind of penetrated the consciousness where it's like, again, this story didn't really do much like the EPS total media blackout from EPS, the chief and no one, no one said boo. No one responded to the stories. I, I mean, I sent in a request like, do, do are you going to say anything about this? Uh, they didn't say shit like, um, so total media blackout from EPS on this and, and is detective B heels an unreliable narrator? Like he's clearly not trusted by the upper levels of, you know, the EPS and clearly the, like the, all these other police forces, as we go through the story, you'll see all these other police forces looked at his work and didn't think that there was enough there to charge. So it's like, I mean, is there corruption at the highest levels of the police force? Again, the question, the story does leave you with more questions than answers, but again, very important questions are raised. So Mm -hmm. Abdullah Shah has a long rap sheet. I think it's worth kind of just setting the table for who it is we're talking about here. So uh, Shah has a criminal record that dates back to 1983, uh, in 1984, he was sentenced to four years in prison for producing and trafficking methamphetamine. After he was released, Shaw established a complex mortgage fraud ring involving 165 residential and commercial properties in central Edmonton. In February of 2008, he was sentenced to six years in prison for mortgage fraud by an Edmonton judge who called him, quote, the controlling mind of this fraudulent scheme, according to parole board documents. He was given credit for pretrial custody, served less than two years. He was released in 2009. In 2010, Pervez legally changed his name to Abdullah Shah. And uh, once again, he began collecting residential and commercial properties through his company, HPS. Uh, He also faces a preliminary hearing in January on four counts of trafficking fentanyl. Shah is currently on probation. He was sentenced to a year of house arrest and probation after admitting last December that he had paid people to assault a former employee. And on August 13th of this year, Shah was shot in the face, uh, the jaw actually, at one of his inner city properties. He uh, has apparently recovered. Uh, no one has been arrested in, in connection uh, with that shooting. CBC reached out to Shah multiple times. Uh, he never responded except through his lawyer and through the statement that uh, Omar read out to all of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very interesting to me. Okay, the one thing I do want to say about Abdullah Shah and his time in Edmonton, and obviously someone who spent years in prison, is that... I think he's a good example of how rehabilitation is the goal, but often is missed when people go to prison or at least when they have to deal with the criminal justice system. And I think it's pretty sad and disappointing to hear that someone could spend so much time and obviously, you know, seemingly receive so much support and still be seemingly in the same place or at least like still dealing with the criminal justice system and still being charged with all these crimes. Um, Yeah, obviously something is going wrong here. There's a piece that's missing. Someone is not doing their job. Yeah, something's going wrong if someone is continuously repeating the same, same acts. And people can, you know, speculate as to why this is the case. But I think just the fact that it's happening is, is really sad. Yes. So uh, this subhead is called Intelligence Gaps in Investigation. Uh, Investigators spent 2018 gathering intelligence on Shaw and his associates connected to HBS. 
the investigation was called Project Flatermouse, which was the the project that came before Project Fisk. Uh, it was designed it was designed to collect enough information to convince Alert, the Alberta law enforcement response teams, to launch a criminal organization investigation. Funded by the provincial government, Alert was created with the objective of tackling serious and organized crime. Uh, and when they were contacted by Janice Johnson, they refused to contact uh, comment on this story. <laughs> uh, EPS presented its case to Alert in December 2018. Uh, and alert declined to take it on. Uh, in an August 2021 email to CBC News, uh, Brzezinski, who worked at Alert, said he was not involved in Alert's decision, which had already been made by the time he had met with Beheels. Alert advised EPS that there were several intelligence gaps within the investigation that some of the intelligence quote or sorry comma that some of the intelligence being relied upon would not stand up in court, and ultimately the file did not meet alert's mandate for intake brzezinski wrote detective Beheels was encouraged to continue working through the investigation to rectify the outlined issues at that point edmonton police inspector peter bruni brasio authorized Beheels and his partner to launch a new investigation they partnered with the canada revenue agency and named it project fisk the targets were shaw hbs and the people who worked with shaw there was a bunch of search warrants that were executed in July 2019 that were a part of Project Fisk. You may have seen them in the news. I remember reading about those in the news that a bunch of like Shaw properties got raided by the CRA and the cops. Uh, ultimately, those did not lead to any criminal investigations, and eventually Project Fisk was called off. And here's where we get to kind of like the meat of it is this is this is when B Hills makes his serious allegations that again no one from EPS has dealt with. Quote, in his January 2020 report to, Mc, to Chief McPhee, Beheels wrote, I believe that members of the Edmonton Police Service have engaged in corrupt acts that have effectively insulated this criminal organization from investigation and prosecution. Beheels made a similar allegation in a March 2019 report to McPhee. CBC News requested an interview with McPhee. That request was denied. Uh, EPS spokesperson Cheryl Separate. Cheryl Shepard confirmed in late July that the internal concerns raised by Beheels beginning in 2019 were forwarded to the uh, Alberta Serious Incident Response Team, or ACERT. Uh, that's the province's police watchdog. And Beheels was interviewed by an ACERT investigator. It was determined that the allegations were not believed to be criminal and that EPS would retain the filed, Shepard wrote. Given the nature of the allegations, the EPS felt it would be more appropriate for an outside agency to investigate. Edmonton police passed along Beheel's concern to the Calgary Police Service, first in 2019 and then again in 2021. The CPS Anti-Corruption Unit investigated Beheel's allegations for more than two years. The investigation was called Project Achilles. Again, with like, why? Why are you naming Project Achilles? Beheel's was interviewed, as were a number of other Edmonton police officers. Uh, in July of 2021, the investigating detective with Calgary Police notified Beheel's by email that the CPS investigation had concluded and found that the evidence did not support or meet the threshold for criminal charges. So that's the, that's the, there you go. That's the, that's the important part. And that's the message right there. If you need to remember it, I think it's very important to go back to the beginning as well and, and, and realize that in his allegation, he said they engaged in corrupt acts, corruption, corrupt. Is that a, is that a, is that a crime? Corruption is a crime, but can you charge someone with that? What does that mean? I would love to hear what he's, you know, referring to because yeah, corrupt acts is such a broad and vast statement. And, and like the investigation that the Calgary Police Department did, um, they said it didn't meet the thresholds for criminal charges. And again, a lot of things can be very bad and maybe even corrupt, but not meet the threshold for criminal charges. And then you can ask further questions. OK, well, 
Should the threshold be lowered? Should it be raised? Why do we even have a threshold in, you know, criminal acts or corruption and institutions that have an exceedingly large amount of power and resources? A lot, again, a lot of questions to be asked here. Yeah. Uh, four days later, EPS spokesperson Shepard noted in an email to CBC that the extensive investigation by Calgary police found no criminality or evidence of corruption by the Edmonton Police Service and its members. <laughs> so there you go. Okay. Some cops looked into the other cops and they found no corruption. No, so, so yeah, okay. Everything's so fine. Yeah, this is interesting. It's uh, like a game of he said, she said, <laughs> but all internally and all the fingers kind of pointing at each other in some ways because they're all kind of the same, realistically. I mean, in my memory, I mean, I'm only 38 years old. I mean, you're you're younger than me, but I do not remember any in in my lifetime of any cops getting rung up on like corruption, <laughs> no, right? No, no, like, no, no, like no. I am unaware of in recent Alberta history of anything like that happened. Like, like the thing, the only thing that really comes to mind is like when Carrie Diot got uh, kind of rung up on DUI charges that turned out to be like, cause they were mad at him for writing like columns and stuff. Yeah. Uh, like that, that was bad. That was shady. That was harassing, obviously a, a journalist, but like, that's the, I don't know if you're, if you're out there and listening to this and I'm just not getting, I'm not remembering correctly, a huge corruption story in Alberta policing in the past 25 years, please let me know. But like, I don't know. There's just no history of this kind of stuff coming to light in Alberta. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, all the proper authorities looked into it and they found nothing, but here we have this, you know, 11 year veteran of the EPS, a detective lighting his career on fire, alleging, uh, corruption and criminal criminality, and no one believes it. And Janice Johnson wrote a five part piece, like 6,000 words and still nothing has happened. And so I think this deserves to be looked into more. Uh, and that's why you know, we're fucking doing a podcast on it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to date, no disciplinary charges have been laid against B-Heels, um, but he did receive notice that he is under investigation uh, for uh, police act charges of breach of trust, discreditable conduct, and insubordination. Uh, of course, related to his you know, leaking 64 gigs of, of, uh, of uh, investigation materials to the CBC. <sighs> yep. So that's essentially the first piece. Like, that's, that's it. Um, again, there's four more. The, I think the stuff against Shaw, I think we'll kind of skim over. Like, again, I think the, the far more interesting part of this story is the Edmonton police stuff and how they simply have stonewalled any kind of internal look into this. But the next piece is called, uh, project Fisk and the allegations against Abdullah Shaw. I'll probably skim over this a bit more than the first one. The first one kind of definitely set the tone of when, of what we were looking at, um, but started in 2019 and headed by Detective Dan P. Hills, uh, Project Fisk was a joint operation between the Edmonton Police Service and the Canada Revenue Agency. You know, they were focused on money laundering, evasion of taxes, participation in a criminal organization, that sort of thing. And, you know, they ended up raiding his uh, bunch of shop properties. Search warrants were executed in July of 2019. And actually, the, those, when those search warrants were executed, you're able to get, the public is able to p- pick up these information to obtain, which is essentially the like the brief that the police have to give to the judge in order to justify getting a search warrant. And, um, and there's, some, there's some interesting nuggets in there. But in this search of Shaw's properties, more than 11,000 exhibits were seized. Um, you know, the evidence gathered 
indicated uh, a number of witnesses who felt they had been victimized by Shaw. So presumably those were, were interviewed. Um, you know, when the ITO was unsealed by the courts in January of this year, Shaw's defense lawyer, Paul Moreau, reviewed the document and wrote to CBC News, it is clear that Detective Beheels blatantly lied in the information to obtain, sworn under oath to obtain the search warrants, and my client had no ability to respond to these lies before the search warrant was granted and the searches conducted, wrote uh, Shaw's w- w- lawyer, Moreau. Moreau suggested Beheels acted out of clear animosity and malice towards Shaw. He described Project Fisk as a witch hunt driven by, quote, tunnel vision. Beheels denies Moreau's allegations. Um... There's a, the interesting, the, probably the most interesting part of this is, uh, the Shaw business model does go into a bit of, uh, detail about how, um, a former employee of Shaw was kind of beat up on orders by Shaw, like in prison. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the Shaw business model section is, uh, I think important. Like what are the struct, like, oh, we were always kind of, I'm always curious in the like structures, like how does it all work? What's the flow chart that explains how this organization works or how this kind of power system works right and so the shaw business model essentially he was a he was a landlord he owned uh, shaw owned about 100 rental properties in the city uh but in 2020 his lawyer said he was getting out of the business of landlording uh shaw has also acknowledged that many of his tenants have criminal records addiction or, or mental health issues and often are unable to pass a credit check or come with a damage deposit this was kind of ground that was covered in the slum town thing right mm-hmm. um yeah this was the excuse i believe proffered up to the the journalist to produce that. Um, but in the final report to the Provincial Crown about the two-year police investigation into Shaw and his HPS associates, Beheels noted that housing was often, often provided to tenants through HPS with no credit checks. Even the damage deposit could be waived and added onto the debt side of the ledger. Home placement systems Home placement systems properties are used to generate income and to house, quote, workers, says the ITO, the information to obtain. And so you can kind of see the outline of, of how it works, right? In that report, a former HPS employee told police that Shaw's, quote, street reputation and history of violence made it common for people to suffer under recruitment by HPS's, HPS because the penalty for outstanding debts included violence. Quote, exploitation of existing and developing substance addictions was also a common control method and was employed by Shaw to control individuals for the purposes of exploiting them. This is uh, the report to Crown Council. This is in the ITO again. The former employee was the only person, quote, willing to outline the full nature of his exploitation. He was exploited to conduct work, criminal and non-criminal, under threat of violence by means of indentured servitude to Shaw. Which is like, Jesus Christ. Hmm. Uh, When Edmonton police executed a search warrant on Shaw's Riverbend house in July 2019, they seized a rent roll from June 2019 on 43 properties, it showed that most of the rent had been paid, but the tem- tenants had accumulated debt to the tune of nearly eighteen thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. So uh, again, the people who are caught up in Shaw's orbit—I mean, it's—it's. It's, it, I can't say too much about it because obviously, legal bullshit. But like, it's important to remember that this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum, no. and that the, the actions of Shaw and of the police here are having real life consequences on people. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I think if anything, those are the voices that might be missing from this story is, is all the people that have been impacted, whether directly or indirectly. Mm -hmm. And obviously I feel like some town attempted to do that, but 
in its focus on it, it, it had it, it was misguided in its focus and it, it was misguided in its singular focus on a supposed uh, homeowners who are moving into the community instead of understanding that there are many different angles to the story and that obviously you know you can say that one is more important than the other but realistically yeah there are a lot of victims there are a lot of people who have things at stake here and yeah, a lot of people have suffered because of actions um, by, you know, all of these people. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a complicated story. I, I think you're right. Like this this piece, this series of pieces, I mean, has I mean, it's just simply better reporting. Right. Like they have they know all of the stuff that the police know, which is like, I mean, the police knew a lot. The police did a huge deep dive on this guy for years. And um, I mean, ultimately, they didn't lay any criminal charges for a variety of reasons. But like what was missing from Slumtown was the like was the actual flowchart. Here we have the flowchart, but what we don't have, again, is the, like, what is the actual effect? Like, the people on the ground, like, what are they going through? What is it like to live, uh, to be under this system, to work for him, to, like, know, to have loved ones who who work for him or whatever, right? Like, it is, it is, it is still a giant gap in the reporting on this story is that the voices of those people still are not out in the world. Yeah. And um, I think the story is worse for it. And if anything, I don't think it's very easy to do. I don't think what no. we're asking for is obviously easy. I think a lot of people don't want to talk to the media for a plethora of reasons. Well, but especially with, with, with someone like Shaw on the other end of it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, but at the same time, I feel like, um, yeah, it's a big gap. And it would be it would be good to know because, yeah, ultimately, I think they're probably going through very very difficult situations and um yeah it doesn't it doesn't really get shown here so this third piece i think the third and the fourth piece really jumped out at me when i read them uh headline police investigation probes landlords taxes casino activities the subhead detective recommended 19 criminal charges out of project fisk but the crown disagreed and didn't pursue charges so the the stuff when we get into the CRA stuff blows my mind. Like, I don't know. I mean, you're pretty young. You've never had to deal with the CRA. The CRA, they can do whatever the fuck they want. Like, they can crack you open and look inside. Yeah, I have one friend, actually, who I went to school with, and he was an accountant. And I he ended up at the CRA for an internship, and I think he might still be there. But, yeah, he was telling me how all he does is go into, you know, medium to small business owners and, you know, really, you know, you know, check, check if everything's all right, you know, how, what's being expensed, what's not being expensed, you know, all the, all the things that, you know, you can throw red flags at basically. I know, I know. I like, it's just as a, as a total lay person, not an accountant, not anyone who's even really had any negative uh, dealings with CRA, just like have had people who have had, it's like, ugh. all right, well, here's, here's the, here's the Janice Johnson piece for two years. Investigators with project Fisk, a joint Edmonton police service and Canada revenue agency task force probe the empire built by notorious inner city landlord, Abdullah Shah, also known as Carmen Pervez. But despite the thousands of hours committed to unraveling the inner workings of a suspected criminal organization, no charges were laid against Shaw or seven of his associates connected to home placement systems. This was a blow to the man who headed up the investigation, now suspended Edmonton police detective Dan Beheels. In a 75-page summary of the case he submitted to the Crown in December of last year, the aforementioned ITO, Beheels wrote that he believed he had the evidence to support 19 criminal charges against Shaw and seven of his HPS associates, including participation in a criminal organization, laundering proceeds of crime, fraud, forgery, human trafficking, possession of property obtained by crime, and drug trafficking. 
After reviewing Beheal's findings that same month, the Crown had declined to pursue any charges. Sarah Langley, chief prosecutor with Alberta Appeals and Specialized Prosecution Office, told CPC News that in order to prosecute, there must be enough evidence for a reasonable likelihood of conviction, conviction and it must be in the public interest. Um, I mean, kind of one or the other there, no? Well, this is interesting because I feel like, yeah, you could have something that's in the public interest that you don't have enough evidence for. You could have something that you have enough evidence for, but it's a waste of public resources because all of these crown prosecutors are, you know, taxpayer funded. And realistically, you you consistently hear stories about how these offices are underfunded, how there's not enough prosecutors. Obviously, the legal profession, I don't think incentivizes, but definitely has a problem with people going into, um, you know, public prosecution essentially i think it's more enticing to go do other things with your law degree for at least a lot of people that i know so with all those things in mind i feel like the answer that's being given for not moving forward with the charges against carmen perez they're reasonable but again you could argue otherwise yeah i mean here here we have another institution that in this case the alberta crown prosecutors who simply you don't believe Dan B. Hills or don't believe in his work, right? And don't believe that he uh, was was did enough to actually prove. And the quote here is, the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service maintains that, to date, this test has not been satisfied, the, the test about uh, reasonable likelihood of commission and public interest, this test has not been satisfied with respect to any of the charges contemplated in relation to any of the alleged conduct. B. Hills disagreed and this is why of course he uh, ended up turning over his entire investigation file to janice johnson at C- johnston at cbc uh quote uh, quoting going back to the janice johnson story one of the lawyers who represents shaw has accused b heels of conducting a witch hunt against his client this investigation resulted in a colossal waste of resources and was driven by tunnel vision and malice paul morrow wrote in an email to cbc news however morrow and shaw did decline repeated requests to be interviewed i mean I do want to know how much time and money was spent on this investigation. Oh man, and that's a doozy, and that's a doozy when you really put this in a larger context. Which again, very important to do. We're dealing with um, a couple of things here. You know, if we really scale it completely all the way to the very top, we're dealing with a province in Alberta that has a serious dependence on natural resources. That's put a you know put a baseball to our kneecap in terms of our ability to actually make money. And then you circle back to Edmonton. A city that, you know, completely, in my opinion, overfunds its police department. And then you have a police department that has an investigation that's going on for years and years and years. using Th- Three years of investigation and thousands of man hours, probably tens of thousands. And when we say man hours, we're also talking about employees that are guaranteed making more than $100,000 a year. These are investigators. Very well paid. Very, very well paid. With lots of resources. Allegations from these investigators cause other investigations to be prompted that end up in a dead end because, again, Calgary Police was investigating. The Edmonton Police, based on these allegations, you had ACERT that was contacted that declined to investigate. So, um, and all of this to end up at the same place that they essentially started, which was... Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. And I don't know if we're allowed to be angry about that. Are we allowed to complain about that? Is that this is, It's a waste of fucking money. Like to, to, to have gone to the extent to have invested so much time and resources into this investigation that they did 
and to come up with nothing. Yeah, that's a waste of fucking money. I guess the argument might be that, you know, everything could end up as a waste of money, but we have to go above and beyond to, you know, actually investigate every crime and make sure that we do our due diligence and, you know, try to charge these people because you never know. But at the same time, I feel like there's been so many steps along this road where maybe B Hills would have known that there was not going to be um, charges laid at the very end. Well, Shaw's lawyer is right. This was a colossal waste of resources. And, and whether it was driven by tunnel vision or malice, I don't have any, I, I can't say, but yeah. I, mean, I mean like colossal waste of resources that's yes. a fact. To spend years investigating this guy and to wait and delay no charges. And like, okay, is the corruption at the highest levels of the police force real? I mean, we, we have no idea. No but at the, at the very least, this is a stunning level of incompetence at all levels of the EPS to investigate so much time and effort into investigating this man and not charge him with a single thing. And then look, and then what we're going to, like, let's, let's dive into it because the story gets, like, into some very interesting specifics. Okay, uh, subhead, properties, casinos, and alleged tax evasion. The Project Fisk investigative documents detail how Beheels and investigators believe Shaw and his HPS associates allegedly ev- evaded paying taxes and laundered money. A Canadian uh, a CRA analysis of the possession and sales of property under the control of HPS alleged that be between 2013 and 2017, the company had evaded taxes on $3.4 million on sales of property, the report to the Crown states. Home placement system Home placement system operates in a cash business, making it easy to commingle legitimate cash with illicit cash, B. Heels wrote to the Crown. For the purpose of this investigation, the illicit money that will be focused on is the black money, money that is derived from the evasion of taxes. Matthew McGuire, a Toronto-based forensic accountant and recognized expert on money laundering, has reviewed documents from this investigation that were provided to him by Janice Johnson of CBC News. Quote, the alleged tax evasion has a lot of merit from the perspective of creating excess cash, McGuire told CBC after reviewing the CRA analysis. Not paying taxes on any of that money leaves them 50% better off than if taxes had been paid, he said. It would be hard to invent a set of facts to better showcase prevailing money laundering techniques in Canada. A spokesperson for the CRA would not say if the agency had laid any charges against Shaw or if charges were pending following Project Fisk. This quote is from CRA. In order to ensure the integrity of our work and to respect the confidentiality provisions of the acts we administer, the Canada Revenue Agency does not comment on an investigation that it may or may not be undertaking. <laughs> cool. Nice. Very cool. Uh, cannot confirm or deny that uh, when we raided that guy's place and took 11,000 exhibits that we ever did anything with it. Uh, sure. Uh, subhead here, anatomy of a property transaction. In the report to Crown Counsel, Hills details numerous allegations on how Shaw and his HPS associates were able to allegedly avoid paying taxes. As of July 2019, HPS owned more than $24 million in residential and commercial real estate in the Edmonton area. Hills also alleges in the same document that many of the properties were owned by numbered companies with mortgages obtained from private lenders at high interest rates. In one example detailed in the report, a numbered company bought a multi-unit building in the Edmonton neighborhood of Parkdale, just north of Commonwealth Stadium, for $153,750 in January of 2014. A Shaw family member signed the transfer and got a $125,000 mortgage from a Vancouver lender. Six months later in July, the same property was appraised at $500,000. By May 2016, property taxes were in arrears for $12,714, and in September of that year, the building was damaged by fire and later boarded up. A month later, in October, Alberta Health Services deemed the premises unfit for human human habitation. 
In February of 2017, a different numbered company purchased the property for 375000 despite the extensive fire damage, taxes owed, and that it had been found unfit to live in. A mortgage was obtained through the same Vancouver private lender for $230,000. In May 2017, the new owner applied for vacant dwelling insurance. A different numbered company, run by the same former purchaser, brought the property for $415,000 in October 2017, and in December of that same year, a mortgage renewal for $200,000 was issued by the same Vancouver private lender. This property is no longer under the control of Shaw, his HBS associates, or any of his numbered companies. The city issued a demolition order for the building on October of 2019. The now empty lot was transferred to an Edmonton developer in January 2021 for $270,000. The city has assessed its current value at $350,000. I actually drove by this the other day. It's just a giant hole in the ground, a pile of dirt. Hmm. Uh, I don't remember the building when it was around. But uh, again, I'm not a mortgage fraud expert. I'm not a criminal prosecutor. I'm, I don't work for the CRA. I see that series of tax, a series of facts in a row laid out and I struggle to understand it. <laughs> yeah. It certainly seems suspicious. I, yeah, very suspicious. Obviously it's, it's, it would be nice if, you know, someone could hold your hand and walk you through why exactly it was wrong and you know, how exactly people profited off of it. I think again, I'm, inclined to look at the bigger picture as well and realize that there are a lot more serious tax evasion schemes going on and a lot of them are run by you know what you may call you know legitimate actors you know people who have immense amount of wealth and choose to um, store it in offshore accounts or in other assets that are you know untaxable or take advantage of other systems you know like charity systems to you know evade taxes um, but, you know, obviously, Abdullah Shah is the um, star of the show today. So his tax evasion and, you know, his, um, his alleged tax evasion. Yes, of course. Alleged tax evasion. But I should, you know, clarify so, that. So um, B. Hills gets back into it. He says investigators struggle to understand the 270 percent increase in property value, given that there was an arson. The property was deemed unfit for human habitat, human habitation, and there were no renovations completed. B. Hills noted in his report to the Crown. McGuire, the money laundering expert we quoted earlier, uh, was also asked for his assessment. The alleged mortgage frauds ostensibly created hundreds of thousands of dollars in excess revenue, McGuire said. If they continue that pattern, they can get their money out through foreclosure. The finance company is out the money. Allegations of suspicious real estate transactions were also included in a July 2019 document Beheels filed with the provincial court asking a judge to issue search warrants on a number of properties related to Shaw. This ITO was also a snapshot of the investigation at the time it was filed. In a recent email to CBC, Shaw's lawyer, a different lawyer named Erica Norheim, wrote, quote, There was nothing illegal about any of the real estate transactions referenced in the ITO, and we point out that the Crown expressly declined to prosecute, which, again, they're not wrong. No one, no one uh, thought this was illegal. Uh, subhead here. Alleged casino money laundering. This one was like really blew my hair back. Another of the key allegations in the report B. Hills wrote to the Crown was that Shaw was suspected of laundering money through casinos. The National Parole Board noted in a December 2009 report that while Shaw was on statutory release for conviction of mortgage fraud and possession of property obtained by crime, RCMP spotted him at a casino 18 times between June and August of that year, cashing out large sums of money ranging from $10,000 to $120,000. Jeez. The report also notes that Shaw told his parole officer in June 2009 that he had come up with a self-opposed ban at casinos as Shaw had a problem with gambling. 
The ITO filed in July of 2019 included an opinion from an RCMP expert on money laundering. Quote, one of the most common problems faced by criminals is the need to deposit, convert, or dispose of large amounts of cash into financial institutions or other forms of commerce and trade without drawing undue attention to oneself, wrote Constable William Luadnak. According to investigative documents in December 2018, Alberta Gaming Liquor and Cannabis reviewed Shaw's casino activity from June through November of that year. It found he had placed $570,000 into casinos that reported to AGLC over that six-month period. <sighs> Shaw also dropped $238,000 at the River Cree Resort and Casino between April and July 2018. The review noted... <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. This, this guy's a high roller. Over high roller. <laughs> he loves Baccarat. He loves the tables. The review noted that Shaw was to remain risk... Oh, sorry. The review noted that Shaw was... Quote, to remain risked at extreme due to extensive criminality and large volumes. McGuire said rating Shaw as an extreme risk sent a strong signal. When we're talking about extreme risk, we're beyond the idea of a possibility and we're at the point of probability or likelihood, McGuire said. It's not just a theoretical possibility that this person can launder money. We think they probably are. Whenever casinos have reasonable grounds to suspect a financial transaction is related to money laundering, they must file a Suspicious Transaction Report, or STR. According to documents, according to court documents, eight casinos completed 82 pages of STRs on Shaw's gambling activity between October 14th, 2016 and July 7th, 2018. That is a lot of pages of suspicious transaction reports. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much, I don't know what the spacing is or how what kind of font size they use. Um, that seems like a lot. Yeah. The documents show that in June 2018, Shaw went to Casino Edmonton with a female business associate. According to the suspicious transaction report, while Shaw sat at a VLT, his coworker spoke to another man. Shaw approached them and shook the man's hand. When the other man left, she passed Shaw an undetermined amount of cash. Shaw sat down at the Baccarat table and bought in for $1,000 using $100 bills. In six minutes, he nearly tripled his money. His business associate approached the table and whispered in Shaw's ear. Shaw passed all of his chips on her to cash out on his behalf. When she was cashing out, cashing out the $2,900 in chips, a manager, manager asked her for identification. She told, Shaw told the cashier he'd do, it, he'd do it himself, asking why they wanted her ID when she was cashing out for less than the reportable $10,000 limit. Shaw got his money, and the pair left the casinos. The casino. The individual's actions are suspicious in nature, given the totality of his play. The SDR states, Shaw is sporadically involved in a high volume of play while utilizing funds from an unknown slash unverified source. McGuire, the money laundering expert, reviewed the suspicious transaction reports. This is the classic money laundering technique, he concluded. <laughs> Uh, and also, I would recommend if you want to learn more about uh, how uh, folks uh, launder money at, at casinos, uh, Commons, Canada Land Commons did a really good episode on the Vancouver method, which I highly recommend, uh, which really does explain uh, quite well how it all works. But uh, we're going back to the McGuire, the uh, money laundering expert here. Quote, you're passing the chips to somebody else to try to have them be the person identified so that you're not the one that's linked to the source of funds. McGuire said a typical money launderer's objective is to obscure the original source of the cash spent at a casino. The idea is to hopefully get a casino check afterwards to have an apparent legitimate source for the funds that you're depositing somewhere else or using somewhere else, McGuire said. Not just one casino thought that this looked like money laundering. A number of casinos thought that it looked like it was money laundering. Asked by CBC News about her client's casino activities, particularly the June 2018 events, Shaw's lawyer Erica Norheim wrote, 
in an email that, quote, such behavior is equally consistent with entirely lawful activities. She told CBC that Shaw is a problem gambler who voluntarily enrolled in an AGLC self-exclusion program on July 7th, 2018 for a five-year term. The evidence you have obtained regarding Mr. Shaw's vulnerability to gaming activities may be sensational, sensational, but respectfully, it is a private matter, and the evidence in the ITO does not in fact establish that gambling was used in any way to launder, him. launder money, Norheim wrote. All of the money used by my clients at the casino was lawfully obtained. And that's it. That's the final sentence of hmm. part three. I think we got to end it here. We got to come back for a part two. But like, again, he, I, I want to do this podcast literally just to say stuff like this out loud and yeah. just to not know that I'm going crazy when this gets reported by the CBC and no one gives a shit. Yeah, it's important to say these things out loud and like realize how things are operating in our communities and um yeah i think if anything i just hope anyone who didn't get the chance to read the articles gets a chance to know this information now and yeah maybe us all being aware about it will somehow i don't know we'll just all be aware of it yes the more you know <laughs> yeah. the it's more rainbow. you know yeah nbc exactly. uh omar thanks so much for coming on this pod how can kind of people follow you along on the internet to support your work uh you can find my podcast at is this for real.ca uh you can uh hmm, i don't know where else you can find me really uh you can follow us on instagram um at the same handle and yeah follow the progress report i'll, I'll be writing for the hum and you can i don't know Search my name and you'll find my writing there. Yes, but I, you've gotten off Twitter, though. Yeah, what it I, I, like. I don't have a Twitter account anymore. I'll, I might make one again eventually. Congratulations. But, don't do it. Yeah. Unless you have to. <laughs> um, yeah. But again, thanks so much to Omar for coming on the pod. Also, folks, uh, if you like this pod, you want to keep hear, hearing more podcasts like it. You can join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this independent media project going. There's a link in the show notes or you can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Put in your credit card contribute you know five ten fifteen dollars a month whatever you can afford we would really appreciate it also if you have any notes thoughts or comments i'm really easy to reach you can find me on twitter uh, where i am spend far too much time at at duncan kinney and you can reach me by email at uh, duncan k at progress alberta.ca thanks uh to jim story for editing this as always thanks to omar for being a fantastic guest thank you to cosmic famu communist for our amazing theme thank you for listening and goodbye